0: now we are getting over and i am the silver king adam silverstein here to lead you through these hard times with your 2023 nxt vengeance day instant analysis that's right getting over is back once again just minutes after nxt vengeance day went off the air and the silver king finished speaking with none other than the heartbreak kid Sean Michaels himself, we are here to break down everything that happened on NXT's first premium live event away from the WWE Performance Center since Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend last year. It was a very interesting show from start to finish, a lot of things to discuss in terms of the way things were booked, the creative, storytelling, and what's going to happen now at Stand and Deliver Going forward, we're going to break all of that down for you right now, minutes after Vengeance Day went off the air on this Instant Analysis podcast. Before we get to that, we got to kick things off as we always do here at Getting Over with a reminder that this podcast So please, folks, listen to Booker T. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you subscribe, and tell them why they should as well. If you do leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can vote in pre- and post-show polls ahead of and after premium live events and pay-per-views. You also get to join our live Twitter Spaces shows. We do those around WWE and AEW special events. And beyond both of those, you get news, analysis, highlights, and episode drops all week long. So again, follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. Now, this is the point of the show for these instant analysis where I would normally crack open a cold one. Unfortunately, there's two problems. One, I'm still recovering a little bit from being sick. Two, I'm doing the show solo. Usually, I need to have vintage Chris Vanini along for the ride. That way, I can pause occasionally and take a couple sips of my beverage. That's not happening here. I'm taking you all the way through, so you're not gonna hear that classic can opening sound, but it will be back in just a couple of weeks for WWE Elimination Chamber, our next instant analysis episode. One other thing until we get into the full breakdown of Vengeance Day, it was awesome to see so many of you in attendance at Vengeance Day. You guys were tweeting us and DMing us pictures, your experiences. It was great to hear from all of you. And a number of you clearly were at SmackDown on Friday night as well, which means there's a lot of getting over fans in the North and South Carolina areas. One problem though, I think you all forgot to bring your getting over signs to the arena because If you do, and you get it on air, you get to join the podcast. So a reminder for everyone going to these shows in the future, I'm talking to all of you Canadians heading to Elimination Chamber. Do not forget to bring your signs. You get a shout out from us if you make one, and you get to be on the podcast if it gets on TV. So again, Do not forget, Getting Over Signs, it doesn't have to just be the show name, it can be a phrase from the show, Uh, anything related to Getting Over, you bring it to any show, WWE, AEW, NXT, really anything, Impact, uh, ROH, whatever it is, if it gets on screen, you get to join the show. Anyway, let's get to our NXT Vengeance Day Instant Analysis with Vengeance Day in Charlotte, it was Charlotte Flair, who narrated a cold open, she matched up everyone that was in their matches on a stage and gave a brief rundown of their characters and views. It was a really smart device by WWE to inform fans who may not have been watching NXT regularly since the end of the black and gold era, who these people are on their TV screen. And I did see a number of tweets while I was searching the Vengeance Day hashtag of people that were tuning into NXT for the first time in a while because they were curious to see what the product was would be like. Regarding the setup, the stage was basically what they used for the evolution special a few years ago, but there were some extra light arcs on top of it and the screens were of higher quality. I thought it was incredibly eye-catching. The rest of the setup, including the lighting, it really just made it look like an episode of Raw. That's not necessarily bad, but When I think of NXT, I just think of it looking different than the main roster. Now, whether that's the aesthetics of the Performance Center or the old black and gold where it had the dark mat and the lights were lower, it needs to set itself apart from Raw and SmackDown in some way. And the set definitely accomplished that in terms of the stage and the ramp. But the rest of it, what we were watching for the vast majority of the show, it just kind of looked like another episode of Raw with different wrestlers. And they really need to think about that presentation aspect going forward for the premium live events, because obviously in the Performance Center, it clearly looks different than what we get weekly on Raw and SmackDown. So we're going to break down this entire six match card. Usually I do it in order of importance uh, or order of enjoyment, really whatever the hell I want to do, because I, the Silver King, am the host here of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast on this particular show. We're doing it in reverse order. We're starting with the main event and we're going all the way to the opening match. And there's a reason that we're doing that, which we will discuss as we get to our post-show grade a little bit later. So let's kick things off as NXT ended everything with the NXT Championship, Braun Breaker against Grayson Waller inside a steel cage. Rules were announced as pinfall or submission only, no escape. Now there's traditionalists out there who hate the escape concept. I personally like it. I think it differentiates a cage match from Hell in a Cell. Now, if Hell in a Cell never existed, then yes, I would probably say forget the escape. It has to be pinfall or submission inside the ring. But because Hell in a Cell does exist and war games exist where you have to do pinfall or submission inside the cage, then for me, a still cage match, you should be able to escape. Now, I do think that a no escape rule is necessary for title matches, and I definitely agreed with them doing that here. I assumed it was put in place specifically because Waller would do his elbow drop off the top of the cage, and we'll talk a little bit later about what actually happened. Now, Waller wore a gold version of Scott Steiner's chain link headgear, and he got a ring walk with model champagne and a gold shoe anticipating his victory, and his commentary like, Half explained, not fully. It's common in Australia to do a shoey, basically drink alcohol out of a shoe in celebration. Uh, Fans do this all the time, but athletes do as well when they win a championship or a major match. So let's get to this match in particular. Uh, Breaker's entrance was abnormally normal is probably the best way to put it. Uh, Waller kicked the cage door as Braun tried entering but Braun destroyed him outside, slammed the door into him, started uh, getting really explosive with his moves inside. He had a standing moonsault that he mostly missed. Breaker then hit some signatures and a flying bulldog caught between the ropes and the cage. Waller avoided a spear with Breaker just flying right into the cage. Waller came back with a flip over unprettier that really impressed Booker T. I mean, it impressed me as well, but Booker T sitting there, he couldn't believe what he saw. Breaker then hit a Frankensteiner. Waller came off the side of the cage with his between-the-legs elbow drop, which I hate for a near fall. Then he leapfrogged Breaker and hit a low blow, plus his rolling cutter for another near fall. Out of answers, not knowing how to beat Braun, Waller climbed to the top of the cage, only to see Breaker rise to his chagrin. Braun then took Waller's body, hanging off the top of the cage with a superplex into the ring. He followed with a spear but didn't cover. Instead, He picked up Waller like by the head. He screamed in his face that he runs NXT and that Waller talked a lot of trash but wasn't able to back it up. Waller was defiant. He shoved Breaker in the face before the champion ran the ropes for a high impact spear to retain the title in 14 minutes. Now look, despite the raised stakes and the relatively intense storyline between these guys, I will give them credit for that. I mean, this was built into Breaker's best feud since Dolph Ziggler by a mile. Despite all that though, the match was nothing at all to write home about. It was extremely formulaic in terms of what we normally get from Breaker. The huge spot that we were all anticipating the entire match, not only didn't get delivered, they teased it and still didn't deliver it. And that was Waller doing an elbow drop off the top of the cage. We know it can be done. We know it safely obviously. We've seen it done safely. We've seen him, Waller, do plenty of crazy shit and yet nothing. Instead, we got the superplex that we've seen a million times. We're probably gonna see it again Monday night in Becky Lynch versus Bailey. There was never a single moment in this match where Braun was in legitimate danger of losing the title. There was nothing memorable about the match and his reign. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. It has become eye rolling boring. If this was a few years ago, the crowd would be booing Breaker out of the building. I'm talking about the NXT black and gold crowd. He's become completely one note. It was too early to give him the title when they initially strapped him up. It was then absurd to put it back on him immediately after he lost it to Ziggler. And now he is completely wearing on me and probably many of you as champion. I mean, it has been this way for at least four months now. Wrapping this entire thing up, the match was okay. Middle of the road. Uninspired from a booking perspective. Braun has all the physical tools and probably the best spear in wrestling today. But the package is not working. And he is nowhere near ready for the main roster. It is crazy how parallel this juncture of his career is with Roman Reigns. The difference, of course, being that Roman was on the main roster and Braun's in NXT. Legacy superstar, pushed to the top in the title immediately, not yet ready for prime time, with a title reign and a push that is dragging out way too long to the point that almost everything that Braun Breaker does right now rings hollow to me. Now, hopefully, with the way the finish went down, there's something interesting that's going to happen. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on this show. But on this night, in this match, this felt like the weakest thing on the entire show. And unfortunately, that's not abnormal when it comes to Breaker recently with everything he does being so formulaic and predictable. It wasn't bad by any means. It was far better than their first match, mostly because we got a real finish. But I wasn't enthusiastic coming out of it, as you can tell. And really when you're building a card, I mean, the main event should always be your best match, but even if it's not your best in-ring match, it should have elements that get you really excited ending the show. And if you listen to the crowd, uh, if you watched it yourself, which I'm hoping most of you probably did who are listening to this, it just didn't achieve any of those goals. I went three stars B- for the main event Brawn Breaker. And Grayson Waller. Uh, let's move to the women's championship. Roxanne Perez defending against JC Jane and Gigi Dolan in a triple threat match. Now, this was the co main event. Toxic Attraction entered together and obviously tried two on one work early. JC was the first to accidentally take out Gigi. They loudly conversed at ringside with Dolan, seeming to pull Jane in the way of a Perez baseball slide. Gigi caught Roxy with the uranage on the ring apron as JC broke the fall and they finally got into it with each other. Roxy nailed a combo Russian leg sweep DDT. JC put Roxy in a tree of woe over Gigi in the corner and drilled both of them with a cannonball. Gigi was loudly preferred over JC, but clearly behind Roxy throughout this match. Toxic hit the champion with stereo super kicks and then headbutted each other falling onto Perez for a teased double pinfall finish that she kicked out of. And that finally got Toxic back on the same page. They did a Dudley boys get the tables type of spot outside. Perez avoided a double choke bomb into it and hit pop rocks on Gigi at ringside. Then she kicked Dolan off the apron through the table outside and hit super pop rocks on Jane off the middle rope for the win in 14 minutes. Now. You're going to hear me criticize some finishes as this instant analysis progresses. But this one was perfection. Gigi taking a finisher at ringside and a table spot, then JC taking an avalanche version of the finisher, and then you have Roxy, the champion, not just winning against the odds, but doing so decisively against two women who are NXT Women's Tag Team Champions you really can't ask for much more from a booking perspective. Whoever put this match together did a fantastic job. They deserve a lot of credit for weaving all these pieces together and doing so in a way that had Toxic come back together in the finish so they can remain a team afterward. That's really tough to accomplish. I was on the edge between B and B+. I had written down B, but kind of talking about this again, I'm going to go a little higher, 3.75 stars and a B plus for this match. Perez retaining was obviously the right call and it's gonna be nice to see her do something fresh coming out of this. The prodigy tag that she has, it is so appropriate for her. She has advanced way beyond her years. Now, Roxy needs more time in NXT. She has to develop her character and really figure out how to speak on the mic with consistency. But from a wrestling standpoint in the ring, she could be on the main roster tomorrow and probably be among... The top 50% of the women's wrestlers. Gigi, by the way, was tremendous with her facial expressions, her mannerisms, and her selling. JC was awesome doing just about everything. The future is bright for all three of these women. I truly hope that Toxic stays together as a tag team and gets moved to the main roster after WrestleMania season. All they need is an improved finisher, and they're a fully formed women's tag team. So congrats to Toxic for doing a great job. And Roxy, I mean... She's just, you know, coming out of this show with a lot of talented people, she was one of the most impressive. She's 21 years old. It's absolutely wild. Uh, Let's go to the Tag Team Championship for the Men. New Day defending against Gallus, pretty deadly, and Chase U in a fatal four-way match. Gallus' theme was the latest to get remixed, and yes, it was worse than its previous version. I think the only one that I like is Asuka's at this point. It's different. It's still not as good as her original theme, but it's really Good, and it works for her current character. This was mediocre. Anyway, getting to the match. Kofi Kingston's hot tag. It injected some needed energy into this match, which started really slow. He had a boom drop on three dudes simultaneously, an SOS, and he really got the crowd going. New Day also hit up, up, down, down in a broken fall. Andre Chase threw Kofi off the top rope into five dudes at ringside. Chase then put Kit Wilson into six dudes with a superplex. Gallus and Duke Hudson teased an announced table spot, but pretty deadly halted it, and like put the table back together, which got heat from the crowd. It made me laugh out loud, I'm just being honest. Hudson then went on a run doing Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels signatures before Gallus took him back outside for a crash through the announce table, so they paid it off. Chase went on a long run next with a huge crowd reaction. He had a froggy crossbody, plus a figure four leg lock in Charlotte, which is something you have to do. Wolfgang broke it with a swanton bomb, PD caught a Kofi trust fall outside and then took Kingston out with spilt milk at ringside. Xavier Woods springboard got caught by Wolfgang with Gallus hitting their power slam finisher for the win. It was a really good match, bell to bell. It started slow. It picked up massively in the finish. It was basically a tornado match over the final 50% to two thirds without tornado rules, which always bothers me when it's just so easy to set up those rules from the onset of the match. If you don't want to tag, then don't do a traditional tag team match. The title change was the obvious move with the right team winning, as we discussed in the ultimate preview. This is what we predicted, Gallus coming out on top. I was somewhat surprised to see Woods take the fall when anyone else besides Kofi really could have, and they put Chase U in the match late, which we all assumed meant they were going to take the fall. But if I had to guess, New Day probably just wanted to put over a young team directly. That's how they operate, and it's really respectful that they do things that way. I went 3.5 stars in a B for this match. Not memorable in any way, but good work from everyone involved. Gallus' finisher was botched, and it's also just another lazy finisher where one guy does a move, and the other just kicks the person in the head right before the move is executed. I hate those so much. There's two types of moves I hate for tag teams. Those... And high low variations of which there's a million, but they're all basically three versions slightly changed. There are so many cool tag team moves you can do. Look at Casey or Katana Chance and Caden Carter, they do the assisted 450. That's inventive. Look at all of New Day's tag team finishers, those are inventive. NXT, you're building up all these tag teams, you gotta work on their tag team finisher moves i think chase you on nxt this past tuesday had a really cool tag team finisher pretty deadly does spilt milk that's a great tag team finisher you gotta work on more of these for some of your teams especially when they take championships because this stupid power slam kick in the head it sucks i mean imperium they have the imperial bomb makes sense right think about the road warriors and their finishers so again let's come up with some better tag team finishers anyway i digress A highlight was the crowd being all in with the Chase U gimmick. I wasn't really sure how knowledgeable the fans would be with NXT because I mean, look, they really wrestle in front of the same three to 500 people in the performance center every week. They haven't done takeovers on the road, but this was a 6,000 person setup that was sold out for that setup. It's a 14,000 seat arena, but they sold out the initial allotment of seats that they put out there. And there's clearly enough people watching NXT because based on the chance and, and what we saw throughout this premium live event. So credit to NXT for really doing a good job and credit to the fans in Charlotte for being great, particularly during this match and the women's championship match as well, and the opener, which we're going to talk about, obviously, at the end of this instant analysis. Uh, let's move to the Apollo Cruz against Carmelo Hayes best two out of three falls match. The NXT Anonymous account on Twitter uh, showed candid video of a hotel confrontation Friday night, and this is the type of content I've wanted from wrestling for a decade. Anyone who has listened to me across all the podcasts I've been on, you know that when I, yes, I i am going to do a little Barry Horowitz pat while I say this, uh, came up with the idea for the 24-7 championship before WWE introduced it, my entire idea for it was to be a social media YouTube type of championship where WWE could alert you into, hey, this match is happening in progress at a subway, backstage, in an alley somewhere. And all of a sudden, you got to watch a title be contested or a random brawl or fight or something like that. And this was like a small example of truly candid camera action without it being, you know, done in a way that's highly produced and, you know, polished. It was raw and it seemed uncut. It seemed like someone took their phone, held it up, saw something happening. And that's what we as fans got to see. We saw something similar uh, in the. Performance center training area during the build to the Braun Breaker-Grayson-Waller match. I love what they're doing with this type of stuff. And I think they need to expand it a little bit more. Anyway, let's get to what actually happened at Vengeance Day. Uh, Trick Williams announced Mello as both he and Apollo got special entrances. It really made this feel like it was the main event of the show. And Cruz also had blood-red contacts. And, you know, going into this match, let's not forget, I would say almost unanimously... The expectation was this would steal the show, it would be the match of the night. So doing those entrances, it just kept those expectations as raised as they could be going into the opening bell. So Cruz caught Hayes springing backwards for a German suplex, then hit a tuck moonsault off the apron outside and a delayed vertical suplex inside. Apollo countered an attempted springboard with a great enziguri, then superplexed, yes, superplexed, Mello twisting him off the apron inside from the second rope. Apollo kept selling an injured neck and breathing problems because he got hung up on the rope multiple times in the early part of the match. Mello hit some great counters, a twisting cutter, and a cross face, leading to a surprise submission and a 1-0 lead for Hayes after 15 minutes. Apollo came back with a couple Germans and a standing shooting star press, but Mello answered with the fadeaway leg drop. Cruz then connected with a fucking... Spanish Fly DDT, which I know he's done before, but I forgot that he's ever done it previously. Cruz got hung up on the ropes a third time and he criticized Hayes for attempting to get a fall via countout. Mello hit a code breaker, but Apollo caught him with a pop-up Death Valley driver. Trick sneakily removed the top turnbuckle and then ran around the ring like real classic heel shit, but it backfired because Apollo put Mello into it with an Irish whip. Trick then grabbed a steel chair, but Daba Cato... The former Baba Tunde, the former Commander Aziz, ran in from the crowd to take out Trick in a return. Melo then caught Apollo blind with a springboard on the distraction and hit nothing but net for the 1-2-3 to win clean, 2-0. to zero. Now the second fall came in 8 minutes and the entire match went 23 total after the bell Dabakato lifted Cruz for a hug, but then he headbutted him and hit a sit-down choke bomb into the steel chair to end the segment and the match. Okay, so we got a good amount to unpack here. Top-tier wrestling throughout the match, no doubt about it. Mellow and Cruz were tremendous. There was a cohesive match story based on Apollo taking early damage to the neck and throat, and Mello was smart enough throughout the entire match to focus on the neck and capitalize at every opportunity. Trix interference was executed perfectly, and Mello going into the turnbuckle, it was a great swerve for the fans to counter our expectations of what the second fall would be. But despite that, I gotta say, the finish to this match was relatively awful. So Cato returning, fine. It was smart for Cruz to have something up his sleeve to negate Williams. But for the finish of the match to come seconds later, I mean, I have to count, it felt like it was 30, maybe 60 seconds later. It was way too sudden, especially when it was booked immediately after the women's tag team title match, which also had a sudden finish. That needed to be spaced out better if you were gonna do two finishes like that in succession. Plus, if Cato was gonna turn on Cruz after the bell, then why not have him appear to help Apollo only to later not help him in a key moment? Now, beyond that, I loved the booking for Melo to sweep 2-0 with the first fall being squeaky clean and really the second fall was pretty clean as well. But for that to come in a 23-minute match It was way too short. If you add three to five minutes to the end of that match, we're going way higher grade-wise. Now, I had a ceiling of 4.75 stars A-plus coming into it. I didn't think that they would possibly exceed it. But I really don't think I can get past 3.75 stars B-plus. I may revise it to four and A-minus on a rewatch because this is the one match, or one of two matches, I should say, that I'm gonna watch again on this show. It just never seemed to kick into third gear. And Melo winning, which was like a crowning achievement, making him the de facto number one contender, that should have gotten a massive pop. And instead it got a tepid reaction. But it wasn't because the crowd didn't want Melo to win. It was just the way the finish was put together and how sudden it was. So this was good, but it wasn't great as far as, look, it fell below my expectations by a good amount. And again, everyone went in thinking that this match would steal the show. It not only didn't steal the show, I don't even think it was the second best match on the show. And to me, that was a surprise. Now, after the main event, Mello and Trick, the main event being, of course, the Breaker and Waller match. After that main event, Mellow and Trick walked out to stare at Braun, who was standing atop the cage. He briefly noticed them and then just like turned away and continued celebrating. Even this was lackluster, given the potential for the guys to perhaps start talking trash or have that moment where they really you know stare down each other and maybe get in the ring and look at each other. Breaker was in the wrong corner to execute it in the first place. He was on the far front corner across from the hard cam. But if he was placed properly on the other corner, the one closer to the to the ramp uh, to the stage, then Melo could have like walked halfway up the ramp. And there could have been a nice exchange where they could possibly hear each other to end the show. What's interesting though, is the way Mello was booked in his match, winning relatively clean and the way Braun was booked at the end of his match, disrespecting Waller, acting full of himself and pompous. NXT has a great opportunity right now to do a double turn here. Now the LA crowd will pop for Melo beating Braun either way. And he absolutely must win that match, by the way. He has to win the title at Stand and Deliver, Carmelo Hayes. But I'd prefer if there was a heel champion for a bit, maybe what they're going to do is get him the baby face pop and then turn him heel on the next NXT. That's possible. But they have set the stage now for Melo to get a face pop over Breaker at Stand and Deliver. What they need to do is follow through with the booking over the next two months. Now, there's one other interesting element coming out of this. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I was on an NXT Vengeance Day post-show press conference with Shawn Michaels, a bunch of other media members, and during uh, the end of that you know, press conference, I'd say the final third of it, Grayson Waller stormed into the room in which Shawn uh, was doing this entire interview, and the basis of what he was saying to him was, Carmelo Hayes is your golden boy. You've chosen him over me. What's wrong with me? Why is it not me? What do I have to do? Do I have to have to put like hearts on my tights? Uh, what do I have to do to get on your good side so that you can favor me the way you favor Mello? Here, take a listen. Hey, Sean. Me, hey, we're gonna talk. We're hey, call. I'm gonna write something. I don't even care less. Hey, we gonna talk about it? Yes. Oh, here we go. Here we go, all these. All these simps, are huh? there Sean Ross said. No, 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 we need to talk now. You can talk to yeah, these guys you, later. Just, huh? Why, man. why, let me let me ask you a question, yeah? Why am I not the guy, yeah? I'm gonna put hearts on my gear. Are the rest of these fans, you got all these fans, a bunch of fans in the locker room, yeah? No, talk to me now, talk to me now. What you want you want to take a photo? I can do your pose? You can pretend to be Diesel? You want me to be a fan of you? Is that how I get to be your guy? I'm gonna be a fan? Oh, okay, train. Like okay, train. yes coach. No, no, no to me so you gotta be kidding me you gotta be kidding me and it was really interesting I'm not sure if they did that specifically for the media just as like a little tongue-in-cheek fun thing that we could experience for being on the call or if they're gonna cut video of that and put it on NXT Sean did say something along the lines of, well, we had a confrontation backstage after the show, and this was a continuation of that. So maybe we'll see that part of it on NXT, and not exactly what happened in the press conference. Maybe they'll do both. But I do find it interesting, and I think it's really smart to kind of give Melo one last hurdle, which potentially would be Waller saying, hey, you know, I took Braun to his limit, and you may think you're the number one contender because you beat Apollo Cruz, but you have to go through me first. They do a feud. Waller, of course, is a pure heel. Uh Mellow beats Waller, gets babyface cheers. And that kind of leads into what I think might be happening with Breaker going heel and Mellow going face at stand and deliver. Because let's just face it, even if they didn't change, if they left Mellow heel and left breaker face, if Mello beats him for the title at Stand and Deliver, he's going to get babyface cheers anyway. So you might as well do the turn. And you know what? I talked about Breaker being inherently boring recently in NXT. Turning him heel would actually make him interesting. It would give him an edge, especially without the title. I'd love to see that actually happen. So let's hope they do it. Fingers crossed. I don't know if they will, but you know what they say? If you will it, dude, it is no dream. If you will it, dude, it is no dream. We had the women's tag team championship match, Kaden Carter and Katana chance against Kiana James and Fallon Henley. Briggs and Jensen coached up the challengers before the show. The champions later showed confidence and just kind of boasted about their long title reign. Now, the Casey's were all about the double team moves early. They executed a great assisted leapfrog splash outside, plus an off-the-back Huracarana inside. James got knees up on an assisted Casadora moonsault. Henley hit a springboard neckbreaker, plus an assisted Falcon Arrow on Chance. Carter then took James out with a falling cutter off the apron. Chance did a Huracarana on Henley who was seated on Carter's shoulders on the top rope. So again, she's seated on her shoulders on the top rope, and they still did a hurricanrana out of that. I know the Lucha Bros have done that before. I've never seen two women do that before. Now, that did seem to be the finishing sequence, but James halted the champion's finisher that assisted 450 by pushing Chance off the top rope. And then as Henley kind of locked up Carter with a trap pinning combination... Uh, James held Carter's feet to the canvas as the referee counted one, two, three for a title change in 10 minutes. Later backstage, the new champions made good and began celebrating. And I got to say, I do not get this booking at all. You take a talented, over, and legitimately cohesive team like the KC's, maybe one of only three real women's tag teams in all of WWE, women that have done a good job as champions, but not been featured maybe as much as they should have been. And you have them drop the straps to a thrown together odd couple pair that has only won one match together before getting a title shot. Now, if this was a post-WrestleMania call-up situation and this was Stand and Deliver, then okay, I could buy it. Sometimes you just gotta change the titles and call people up. But Stand and Deliver is two months away. This was straight up the wrong decision at the wrong time. Again, the odd couple pairing of James and Henley, they're mediocre. They got straight booed in the finish and they didn't even get over in the match because they worked from underneath probably for like eight minutes and 30 seconds of the 10 minutes in this match. Now, maybe this will be a heel turn for them, but this is just not at all what I would have done. Now, all of that said, the work was relatively strong. The Casey's did all the heavy lifting and they proved for 10 straight minutes how well they work together as a team. We've been saying they are main roster caliber for a long time. But I just can't see a February call-up. Now, if they call them up in February and put them over at WrestleMania as tag team champions, then okay, this will make sense. But I really do believe that match is gonna be damage control against Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler. And if that's the match, then there is... No reason for the Casey's to lose these titles here because all you had to do was put their reign or, or have their reign go two months longer as you develop more deserving challengers. Now, can the Casey's win the titles back at Stand and Deliver in a big babyface moment? They absolutely could. But again, they should be on the main roster. So the booking here for me, it just does not make sense at all. If you have them drop the titles, you have them do it on a bigger show to a better team, and if not, and you're just going to have them win him back, then this even makes less sense, kind of. I, I That's the way I think about it. I went 3.25 stars and a B for the match. The finish was creative, and it did protect the KCs. Again, it just came too suddenly in a 10-minute match for a title change, and I repeat, this match came right before Mello and Cruz, which also had a sudden finish. So you're doing those back to back. It just didn't leave a good taste in your mouth as the show's progressing. Now, before we get to the opening match of the show, the last match that we're going to talk about, I did get a chance to ask Shawn Michaels about Katana Chance and Caden Carter during that NXT post-show press conference. So go ahead, listen to his answer here, and then we'll circle back on that North American title match. Hey, Sean, thanks for doing this. Uh, similar topic, other side of the coin, probably more, one of the more surprising results tonight was Casey or Katana Chance and Kaden Carter dropping the titles. They seem to have truly bought into the idea of being a tag team in a division that at least across the main roster has been a little bit inconsistent in terms of women pairs staying together. What do you think of them as a team and what does the future hold for them? Look, I think their future is still obviously very bright. Um, and I think the world of they have been, again, I think to your point, they've been the most consistent tag team to me, I would argue, almost in WWE altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what makes them so appealing. And look, with with the exception of outside maybe New Day, I don't know a tag team that doesn't always kind of uh, you know combust, so to speak. I don't see that uh, happening with those two. Uh, I think they're a fantastic team. Um, I think they're uh, wonderful young ladies, obviously. And look, I think this is, was a little setback, you know, from them, uh, but they are the longest reigning tag team champions in, in the WWE. It uh, doesn't mean they can't uh, win them back uh, for a second time. And I'm sure they wouldn't have any problem with that. And I'm sure that's probably one of the first things on their list. Appreciate the time. You gotcha. All right. So interesting answer from Sean. Clearly, I was kind of expecting he might indicate that they were getting called up. He did call them the best women's tag team in WWE, and I, I don't disagree with that. I really don't. I mean, from a cohesive standpoint, in terms of a real team, they have a larger tag team moveset than anyone else. They're exciting. They work together well, and they do it all match long. Now, they're, you know, damage control, uh, EO Sky and... Dakota Kai, they're doing a great job together and they're really starting to gel, but it did take a while for them to get there. And of course, Toxic Attraction is that third team that I think is extremely solid and cohesive. So those are my top three teams in WWE, but there is something to be said. I do think the Casey's have an edge, but I did think Sean, or I hoped Sean, might indicate they were getting called up. And really, rather than that, he kind of said, hey, you know what? Maybe they're going to go get these titles back. So you have them staying in NXT when, again, the main roster badly needs. Women's tag team. So we'll see what happens. Let's not draw any definitive conclusions from his answer, but I did find the way he answered that question to be interesting. As I said, let's get to the final match, which was the first match of NXT Vengeance Day, the North American Championship, Wes Lee defending against Dijak. This opened the show as expected. Dijak again told Lee to quit, so he laid on the canvas playing possum for a boot to the challenger's head. Dijack caught Wes flying off the apron for a Death Valley driver at ringside. He also straight threw Wes over the top rope in a gnarly spot. Wes hit a deadlift German suplex in a really hot comeback spot. He also did a backdrop on the apron, but Dijack missed and hit the floor. Wes followed with a handspring Tope con hero for a huge pop. Back inside, Dijack countered the champion's new finisher into Feast Your Eyes, but Lee countered back into a poison rana before hitting a fisherman's buster. Dijak avoided a 450, catching a springboard into high justice. He locked in a chicken wing with a body scissors. Wes grabbed the referee and then came one inch from the ropes as DiJack moved from the submission into feast your eyes. Wes countered that and high justice back to back. He got caught running with a huge boot. Then he ate a lariat and another boot. DiJack tried an avalanche powerbomb, but Wes somehow countered into a hurricanrana and then added a corkscrew tope for a 2.99 false finish. Wes went for a tope suicida through the corner, but DiJack dodged him using his momentum and throwing him into the barricade. Then he grabbed a desk chair and trapped Wes on it with a broom. He super kicked him. He went for a top rope moonsault outside, but Tony D'Angelo and Stax pushed Wes out of the way. Dijak took them out instead, and then he got super kicked on a springboard coming back inside, before Wes hit his back handspring Pele kick for the win in 17 minutes. This was one of the most surprising bangers I can remember. Not surprising in that these guys aren't immensely talented. But the feud had almost zero juice, and it was widely expected Dijak would walk out as champion, I presumed in relatively dominant fashion. His gimmick still needs a massive improvement but Dijak made the absolute most of an opportunity to remind fans exactly why his ceiling is so damn high. Extra credit to him, by the way, because it looked like he broke the middle finger on his left hand midway through the match, but he totally powered through. And as it turns out, he actually didn't break the finger but he dislocated it. So he was in constant pain. That thing needed to get pushed back in and they weren't able to do it until he went backstage into Gorilla and then the trainer's room. Now, none of this praise of Dijak is to detract from Wesley, by the way. He showed out massively. It was a great moment for him. It was really refreshing to see a David have a completely even match with a Goliath. The finish forced me to dock this a tad I found it unnecessary to do the whole D'Angelo and Stax thing. It actually detracted from the win a little bit, but it certainly wasn't offensive to any degree. And we do have a clear babyface turn for D'Angelo and Stax, which was needed. I went 4.25 stars and an A. I may on rewatch go 4.5 with a more full A. This felt like a classic NXT TakeOver match and a classic NXT TakeOver opener. That is really high praise, of course. Credit to Wesley and Dijak for putting on an absolute banger to kick off this show. So, with all six matches wrapped up, it is now time to go over our final grades for NXT Vengeance Day. The pre show, just as a reminder, we talked about this during our ultimate preview. I gave this show a B from my expectation grade. And then in our pre show poll on Twitter at Getting Overcast, you, the Getting Overheads, got to vote. 18% of you thought it would be an A, 71% said B, and 11% said C. That is a flat 3.57 B average. So you guys agreed with me completely that this would be a B premium live event. Now, while our pre-show expectation grades lined up B and B, our post-show grades, spoiler alert, do not. This is how you all, the getting overheads, voted in our poll on Twitter, At Getting Overcast, 30% thought it was an A show, 62.7% thought it was a B show, and 7.2% thought it was a C show. That averages to just over a 3.7, which is a B plus final grade from you, our listeners. And I just happen to believe you guys are a little too high. In fact, this may be one of the rare occasions where I'm notably lower about a show. Uh, than the listeners, but that is the case here. I'm going flat B uh, for this show, and here's the deal. When you are building a match card, the number one rule is to ensure the opener is never your best match. It should be your second or third best, because if the opener is your best match, as it was tonight with Wesley and Dijak, everything else through the rest of the show will be directly compared to it, and nothing Saturday night lived up to Wesley and Dijak, which means we had five matches in succession that paled in comparison to the show starter. You just can't do that. What should have happened most likely is you have the men's tag team match open the show. You put this match, the North American Championship, third to last, you do the women's match, and then of course the main event. And if you booked it that way, I think the entire thing would have worked a lot better even though perhaps then the women's match would have paled more in comparison to it than otherwise. But I don't think it would. I think it would have stood up on its own. But again, the best match by far, the only match that I straight up gave an A right off the bat was the first match of the show. And then as you go down from there, just kind of recapping, women's tag team, I went 3-2-5, the Mello and Cruz match that I thought was gonna be an A match, Again, I went 3.75 B plus for that. You move over to the tag team match. There was a flat B, 3.5. The women's match, the triple threat, 3.75 B plus. And then the main event, three stars B minus I had as my worst match on the entire show. When you're kind of, when your card is being built that way and that's the way it transpires, it's very difficult to go better than a flat B, which by the way, is a really good grade. This was a good show. I was super entertained for the better part of three hours. But looking back on it, hey, let's be honest. Mello and Cruz underwhelmed compared to expectation. And the main event, even if you don't think it was the quote unquote worst match on the card, and I don't mean worse than that it was bad, you can't say it was one of the two or three best. And that's really what it should be. And then beyond that, look, WWE signed Dragon Lee, yet they didn't show him in the crowd. There were no exciting or surprise moments, which one would expect for the first show away from Orlando in 10 months with 6,000 people in Charlotte. The Dabo Cato return was a shrug. The D'Angelo and Stacks interference was a big whatever. There was just nothing to really sink your teeth into and say, I need to watch that again, with the exception of the opener. So that is why the Silver King is landing at. A B for the post show grade. You all are at a B plus. You enjoyed it a little bit more than I, but again, really solid effort from start to finish for NXT. And it does set the stage for what should be a really exciting stand and deliver show, WrestleMania weekend. I don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday. I know they flashed it on the screen. I didn't see it, but it's gonna be a 1 p.m. start. That was notably difficult last year. It wasn't attended very well. Maybe they'll be able to build off of this, the momentum from having 6,000 people in Charlotte watching the show, great crowd. Maybe they'll be able to build on this and get really good attendance for Stand and Deliver. The storylines need to be A-plus on the way in. And again, very interested to see what they do with Braun Breaker and Carmelo Hayes building that match for the show. But I'll tell you right now, if they even think about making it a triple threat with Grayson Waller, and they don't let Breaker take the fall and Melo pins Waller, that is going to be a... The match could be amazing. It's going to be a massive disappointment. Breaker needs to lose mellow needs to win and you know what it probably should happen squeaky clean as well so look that is the final thought from nxt vengeance day this instant analysis episode of the getting over wrestling podcast i appreciate all of you joining us once again for this special show on the way out allow me to remind you once more that the getting over wrestling podcast So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave that five-star rating on Apple, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast, so you can vote in these pre- and post-show polls. You get news analysis highlights and episode drops. Every time we publish a new show, you find out first if you follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast thanks once again to all of you for listening to this edition of Getting Over. It is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.